listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our scripture reading this morning is from Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 10. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead could mean. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you for that reading, Julie. He is risen. I knew you had one more in you. Excellent, excellent. Uh, Good morning, everybody. So um, the text Julie just read for us uh, is not a traditional Easter reading, you might have noticed. Uh, Normally on a day like today, we would be hearing about the empty tomb, uh, maybe the women who came on that first Easter morning to anoint Jesus' body, ready to face down some Roman soldiers if they had to, only to find the soldiers gone, the stone rolled away, and the tomb empty. Uh, We might hear the story about uh, Mary Magdalene in the garden when she mistakes Jesus for the gardener, Uh, or the two disciples on the road to Emmaus who encounter a stranger who seems oddly familiar. The Bible is just filled with all these great resurrection stories, these great Easter stories from Scripture. But instead today we find ourselves in the middle of the story with the transfiguration. We've worked through the Gospel of Mark together here at church for seven months now, if you can believe it. Seven months we've been in Mark. Uh, And for today, since it's Easter, I thought about skipping ahead to the end and kind of getting Mark's version of the Easter story. But I didn't want to ruin the ending, you know? I didn't want to, like, give it away. No spoilers. Um, We'll get there. We'll get there. So we're halfway through Mark, uh, which puts us smack dab at the Transfiguration. Now, Transfiguration is a lesser-known story, probably certainly not as famous as the Easter story. Uh, It's the story where Jesus takes three of the disciples, Peter, James, and John, to the top of a mountain to pray. And when they get up there, some weird stuff goes down. Jesus starts glowing. Uh, His clothes turn bright white. Uh, There's a voice from heaven. Moses and Elijah show up, these two heroes from the Jewish faith, who, by the way, have been dead for centuries at this point. So that's a little weird. Uh, Don't you just hate it when you go on a mountain to pray and, like, dead people show up? It's the worst. I love this. The disciples freak out because, of course, they do. Peter, Peter's the best. He just starts babbling. He's a nervous talker. Um, Peter's like, 
uh, it's good that we're here, Jesus. Um, uh, we should make some tents for these dead guys, right? He, he's, yeah. And I love it. Mark gives us this little aside where he's like, Peter didn't know what he was saying. He was terrified. Classic Peter. Um, and that's where the story basically ends. Moses and Elijah disappear. Jesus stops glowing, and as they come back down the mountain, Jesus tells the disciples not to tell anyone what happened until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And Mark tells us that the disciples kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead could mean. There's a lot going on in this story. Like, there's a lot here. We could talk about Moses and Elijah, all the Old Testament references here. Um, we could talk about the history across cultures, across religions, of people going to the top of a mountain to meet God. Uh, the transfiguration is also the midpoint of Mark's gospel. Up till now, Jesus has been doing his thing, performing miracles on his home turf, Galilee. From here on out, the story shifts, and it's Jesus' journey to the cross. So we could talk about how this transfiguration is a little glimpse of Jesus' divinity, a little peek behind the curtain, an affirmation before this perilous journey begins. There's a lot we could discuss with the transfiguration, but it's Resurrection Sunday today. And I keep coming back to this line, they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead could mean. What is the significance of Jesus rising from the dead? What are the consequences of this? What does the empty tomb change about our understanding of reality, ourselves, the universe? What could the resurrection of the dead mean? Resurrection is a concept that is pretty unique to the Jewish and Christian traditions. Uh, in most religions, broadly, when they talk about the afterlife, uh, the hope is usually that we'll escape this mess. That's usually the hope, that we'll break free of this mortal body, this physical world of ours, and go someplace else. Uh, Buddhists call this nirvana. Uh, in addition to being an awesome band, <laughs> nirvana is also uh, this state of being where you basically escape the bounds of conscious existence. You break free of the material world, this painful day-to-day -day existence of ours, and you are basically absorbed sort of into the, the ether, the universe. That's nirvana. Uh, Hinduism has a similar idea called moksha, which is escape from the cycle of reincarnation. Like in, in Hinduism, that's kind of the view of the afterlife, this cycle of you know, birth, life, death, repeat, over and over and over. Um, so the ultimate hope in the Hindu faith is to break free of that and transcend to this higher state of being where you leave this material world behind. The ancient Greeks had the exact same idea. Uh, Plato, this famous Greek philosopher, believed that the physical world was a trap. He called it a, a prison for the soul. The idea is that we're trapped here in our bodies, these decaying meat sacks of ours. But in the afterlife, the Greeks believed that our souls would break free and go someplace else, get out of here. This is still how we talk about the afterlife in our culture, right? I guess this is still very much the kind of language we use, this evacuation type of language from uh, movies to funerals, even Christian funerals. It's always 
When we think about life after death, it is this spiritual, immaterial, non-physical existence where we're like floating around on clouds playing harps forever. That might sound like paradise to you. To me, that sounds mind-numbingly boring. (laughs) Like, no offense to any harpists here. (laughs) Thank you, Luann. Thank you. This is where Judaism, the religion of Jesus, was different. Um, the ancient Israelites had a very different understanding of life after death. When they thought about the afterlife, when they thought about their, their ultimate hope for what comes next, they weren't thinking about some detached spiritual existence someplace else. They were thinking about resurrection. Judaism, uh, the religion of Jesus and the disciples, differs from almost every faith out there in its belief that this world of ours this world is inherently good. This universe, this existence, this earth is God's good creation and it's worth saving. The world is broken, yes. It's fallen, it's plagued by sin and death, but the ancient Israelites believed deep down that this world of ours is still God's good creation, which means that their hope for the afterlife was incredibly earthy. If you read the Bible, you're not going to find our hope directed to some kind of escape plan theology where we break free of this world and hang out with God someplace else. Instead, the message of Jesus, the good news, is that God is coming here to transform and redeem this world. See, the Israelites weren't naive about the reality of evil and suffering. When they called this world God's good creation, they still had a place for evil. These people knew suffering. They'd been enslaved, conquered, occupied by empire after empire, yet somehow they still believed that this earth is our home, it's God's creation, and it's inherently good. And the key to that belief, the thing that helped them hold on to that, was resurrection. Resurrection is the hope that someday God is going to rescue this broken world of ours. Someday God is going to bring heaven to earth to heal it. We're not evacuating. God isn't going to abandon this physical world of ours. God is bringing heaven here. This is what Jesus means when he taught his followers to pray for God's kingdom to come. What is the line? On earth as it is in heaven. Absolutely. See, the Israelites believed that someday God was going to send a king, a savior, a messiah, a holy man, a holy one, a son of man. They had a lot of different titles for this king who would bring God's kingdom to earth and inaugurate the resurrection. Healing all that's broken, saving all that's lost, delivering justice, wiping away every tear from every eye, and setting things right once and for all. That is resurrection. So when Jesus tells Peter, James, and John that the Messiah is going to have to die, that they should keep this whole mountaintop experience thing to themselves until the Messiah has been resurrected, they don't know what he's talking about. The Messiah doesn't get raised from the dead, he raises the dead. Jesus can't die. He needs to kickstart the resurrection. How is the Messiah going to conquer death 
by dying. That makes no sense to them. Are we, are we tracking with this so far? Do we understand why the disciples are so baffled and confused by this? Jesus is completely blowing apart their categories. He is the Messiah. He is the promised king who comes to bring new life. But in order to do it, he has to die. Jesus is going to descend into the grave, and then he's going to rise to new life, and he's bringing the whole universe with him. Which brings us back to that line. The disciples kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead could mean. What could a hope this radical A hope this big, this inclusive, this earthly, what could a hope like that mean? What could it mean for us? What could it mean for our community, for those we love? What could it mean for the whole universe? There's so much we could imagine. There's so much we could talk about and rethink, but I want to highlight just a few, because we've got an Easter egg hunt we've got to get underway. So just a few, just a few, just a couple things. Um, First, takeaway. The resurrection means that there's hope for this world of ours. One thing our culture is a little short on these days is hope, especially when it comes to the earth, the world. There's war, there's pandemics, there's nuclear weapons, climate change. We're living at a time of of ecological disaster. Generations of consumption, production, exploiting this world for profit, it's all starting to catch up with us. And remarkably, a lot of us still haven't learned the lesson yet. There's a lot of people today who look at the dwindling resources of our planet, and their question's not, how can we be better stewards of God's creation? It's, how do we milk every last drop? A lot of Christians get sucked into this way of thinking, too, and of course they do. Of course they do. If your view of salvation is evacuation, that we're getting out of here, leaving the earth to burn up, then of course, why would you care what happens to the planet? But if that tomb is really empty, if the resurrection is real, if Jesus came back in a body to this world, then maybe there's hope for creation after all. Maybe God isn't going to just abandon this world to decay, but God is going to transform it, to resurrect it. Which means that the way we live here on earth, the way we treat God's good creation, still matters. To put it another way, when we exploit this world of ours, we deny the reality of resurrection. When we throw up our hands in despair at the state of the world and set our sights on getting out of here, we are ignoring the empty tomb. Jesus came back in a body to this world, and that's because he is going to redeem it. The resurrection means that there's hope for this world of ours. That's point number one. Takeaway number two, the resurrection means that we have a glimpse of our future in Jesus. I think a lot of times when we talk about the resurrection of Jesus, we treat it like a magic trick. It's like it's just a display of power. 
It's like, wow, how cool. Jesus came back from the dead. I guess he's God after all, which is true. Jesus is God, but that's not the point of the resurrection. The resurrection is not just a display of power. It's not a magic trick. The tomb is not a hat. Jesus is not a bunny, right? This is not, this is adorable, but as cute as this is, this is not how the resurrection is talked about in the Bible. When scripture talks about the resurrection of Jesus, it uses language like it's a preview of what God is going to do for the whole world. Like it's a foretaste, a little glimpse of the future that awaits for everything. The Apostle Paul writes that Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. First fruits. At the Last Supper, Jesus and the disciples are getting together for a meal on the night that he's arrested. They were celebrating a holiday, a Jewish holiday. Does anyone know what holiday they were celebrating at the Last Supper? Passover, correct. To this day, our Jewish friends still celebrate Passover every year. This past Friday evening, in fact, Good Friday for us, was the start of Passover, one of the most sacred holy days of the Jewish calendar. But Passover is followed just a few days later with another holiday that we don't talk about as much, the Feast of First Fruits. First Fruits was a harvest holiday in ancient Israel where the Israelites would bring the first fruits of the harvest to the temple and they'd offer it to God as a sacrifice in hopes of a bigger harvest. The resurrection of Jesus happened on the morning of the day of first fruits. He is the first fruit of the resurrection, a larger harvest. Jesus does not come back to the earth as a ghost. He's not a specter or a zombie. Jesus comes back as a living, breathing, physical human being. He eats breakfast with his friends. He walks along a road. The disciples touch him. He has scars, but those scars are the signs of healing. That means that we're not going to have to float around on clouds playing harps. Luann, if you want to, you absolutely can. But it'll be a real harp. <laughs> and you'll play it with actual fingers. You'll be way better. <laughs> God's going to redeem all things, Luann. <laughs> if Jesus is a glimpse of our future hope, that means we're not leaving these bodies behind for some tasteless, touchless, senseless existence. At the resurrection of the dead, when our world is finally transformed and everything is made new, we're going to have brand new bodies. Amen. Bodies that can feel and see and hear and eat. Whenever Jesus talks about heaven, the people there are always eating. That is my kind of paradise. I could do that for all eternity. <clears throat> all this food and no calories. It'd be great. In the resurrected life, we're going to have bodies, but those bodies are going to be free of pain, free of sickness, free of aging, free of death. That is the hope of resurrection. And that brings us to our third and final point. The resurrection means that death will not have the final word. Suffering doesn't have the last word. Oppression, injustice does not have the last 
word. They might reign for a time. We might have to deal with this stuff in the interim, but make no mistake, death has been defeated. You all just sang about this, what, maybe a half hour ago. Let's put those lyrics back on the screen real quick. Next slide. There we go, perfect. Lives again our glorious king. Alleluia, right? Where, O death, is now thy sting? Once he died our soul to save, where thy victory, O grave. This is a song literally mocking death. I love it. Death has been defeated. Christ has conquered the grave, which means that death doesn't get the last word. Violence doesn't have the last word. Pain, war, invading armies, climate change, poverty, pandemics, none of those things get the final word. All of that has been defeated in the resurrection of Christ. God's final word to creation is life. Resurrection. New creation. The tomb is empty. There's hope for the world. Jesus is alive. That's a foretaste of our future. And death will not have the last word because he is risen. Excellent. Excellent. Let's pray. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you for the resurrection and for the new life that is ours in Christ. God, help us to live out of that hope, that earthy hope we have in Jesus. Give us a renewed sense of hope and mission for this world of ours, Lord. And we pray that this hope would move us to action as we pursue resurrected lives here in the present. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at BrockportFB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.